Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another amazing episode of Market Impact Insights. We are going to talk about merger and acquisitions and how to maximize value if you're a company founder, if you're working in a startup, high growth environment. A very common path is to really build value towards some sort of acquisition event. And there is a real opportunity to think strategically about that value creation that actually includes marketing and marketing strategy. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And we are in unprecedented times for a number of reasons, but in terms of merger and acquisition activity, 2021 was a record, a banner year, more than $5 trillion of value globally in the M&A activity, uh, nearly 50,000 transactions. So the volume is there, the value in terms of these transactions is there, but the question remains, how does a specific company ensure if it's on an acquisition path, how does it ensure to achieve maximum value uh, out of that path? And we're going to talk to someone today who knows all about that from hands-on experience in guiding that high value acquisition path. And that is Jonathan Schroyer. Jonathan is the Chief Customer Experience Innovation Officer for Arise Virtual Solutions. And prior to that, was a co-founder and CEO at Officium Labs. And he navigated that uh, transaction uh, for Officium to become part of Arise. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Jonathan has 22 plus years of experience in transforming the customer experience and customer service. What does it mean to deliver high value experience to your customers? He's passionate, uh, has been featured in many leading publications and is a real expert. But we're going to dive into his experience in founding a company and navigating that path. And he's got a lot to share. Jonathan, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Uh, Thanks, Dan. It's it's such an honor to be able to to talk with you again, catch up with you. I I love watching or listening to the podcast and all the different experts you have on. I'm just honored to be one of your guests. Thanks, man. Well, it's great to reconnect with you. And so much has happened in the world since our last podcast conversation Really interested to know what new insights have you gained thinking about everything that's happened over the last two, three years? What have you gained in terms of reflecting on leadership and navigating through all these changing currents? Well, I think the the thing that I've learned most is probably maybe one or two things I would kind of drill down on. One is I've learned the power of betting on yourself and betting on your team. And, and what I what I mean by that is, you know, I've worked for large corporations in the past and I've had great teams, but I've never, never kind of gone out on the market and said, I have an idea. I want to build a great team. I want to build a great company. And let's all bet on ourselves and make the magic happen because we have the talent. So that's that's one of the first things that I'm seeing, not only that I did, but a lot of people are starting to do. They're starting to think about how they can create their own value 
for themselves and for a group of people that have passion and zeal for the same ideas. That's one area. I think the second area was what you're seeing is because there has been just an enormous amount of volatility uh, in the world over the last two to three years for a number of different reasons, we're starting to kind of come out of that. And some trends that you're seeing is that, you know, value creators and value buyers are really having meaningful conversations. I think you mentioned it, $5 trillion, $50, 50,000 transactions. I think it's, you know, 2022 is going to be another great year like that, where there's just so much value out there to be had. And the people that are bold, that have great ideas and want to go after it, and then are willing to share um, their idea with value buyers and then grow it exponentially from there. We're seeing lots of good opportunities over the last couple of years. You know, when you were talking about the value creation, you know, one dynamic is when you think about the difference between the large, maybe global uh, organization versus a more scrappy, smaller startup. And I often wonder if leaders at different levels, even mid-level, you know, or senior leaders that are in these bigger organizations, is there less inclination maybe to take on that uh, accountability or, or is there less of a feeling of empowerment in the value creation or is there a potential risk that you're just assuming someone else is going to help do that that value creation for you? I'm wondering, do you have a perspective on that? Because you've worked in, in both kinds of environments. Well, I, mean, I think what's interesting is when you're a startup, you are responsible for the entire system and the entire network of value. Right. And whether you're the CEO, the COO, whether you're, you know, the founding members of 10, 15, even the first kind of 100 to 150 employees, I think they feel an ownership to the entire network or system of value that the company's creating. I think when you get larger than, say, 150, 200 people, that's when you start to really see companies specialize value creation. And then, you know, the larger group of individuals, they don't have the same perspective and they don't have the same information to be able to create value at the enterprise level or at the company level, right? So then they work to create value in their, in their own subsection of the system or the network. And really well-run companies um, can do that if they don't create silos and they empower their leaders to be part of a larger vision and a larger kind of way to create value. But what often happens is as companies get larger, they get fragmented and they get siloed. And so then middle yeah. managers or even senior managers are so focused on their goals and their kind of segment of value that they don't always tie to the bigger picture. And you know, a lot of times companies, they fall into that trap accidentally. Yeah, that's so true. And so we're talking about some of the internal dynamics inside organizations. But if we flip it around to that area that you're really passionate about, which is what's the experience that's being delivered to customers? I mean, that's continued to evolve and it's changing. How, how are you seeing that transformation play out? Well, I think it's super interesting. So customers... I use this analogy, right? Um, I'm in gaming. I work mostly in gaming. I was sharing customer experience. But in the gaming space, and especially in free-to-play games, you could have customers that spend thousands of thousands of dollars inside of a game because they love the game, they love the brand, they want the virtual identity and so forth. And so when someone asks me, they're like, hey, you know, why should we treat that customer any different than somebody 
that's just playing the game for free. And I said, well, imagine that, you know, somebody just bought a Ferrari from you and they've spent $50,000, in your game. Now, they're going to expect you to be available all of the time for them. They're, they're going to have a higher level of value expectation than perhaps somebody that's, you know, just playing the game for free or, or, or they're just not spending a lot of time or money in the game. And so I think what's changed over the last kind of 20 years is companies used to treat all customers as equal. And now what we're starting to see is that companies really understand that all customers are not equal. Um, and cu customers that invest in them, they should invest more in. And if they do that, they'll be able to create that value, that lifetime value, LTV creation over time. So it's not just a purchase of the initial purchase. It's about, you know, how are you creating that experience, that journey with the customer? So then there's rebuy opportunities. And it's not just about how are you responding to their tactical question, but it's also how are you, how you, how are you marketing the services that you provide? Then how are you delivering those services? above and beyond what they expect, and then remarketing um, to increase wallet share. Because as you know, Dan, it's easier to increase wallet share than it is to acquire a new customer, right? And so I think what's changed is, is one, companies are seeing that value piece. And then the second piece is the customer is like, hey, I expect better experience. Like in the 90s, it was fine. I'll sit on a phone call and wait on the queue for five minutes. And then, you know, get the best service on the phone. But now you've got chat, you've got email, you've got WhatsApp, you've got Facebook, you've got Twitter. They want you to come to where they are and still deliver really great service. So customer expectation of value has changed as well. And it's really interesting when uh, a company is going through a transformation in how they look at that customer experience in a whole new way. I'm working with an organization now that's making this shift to more of a subscription model. And yep. I will tell you, it's a wake-up call when the customer relationship starts getting defined in very measurable time That's parameters, right. right? And it's like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, there's this thing called renewal. Oh, yeah. And how do we engage? And we have to be more thoughtful about a communication strategy and all of that. And it, it, it can right. be a real, a real challenge, right, for companies to pivot into that new way of thinking. I, I often, yes, it can be a huge challenge. And a lot of companies you know, started that journey back in the early 2000s. And then a lot of other companies are realizing the enormous value of subscription versus, you know, one-time buy. Um, if you look at the math, so the subscription model is by far a, a better model for long-term you know, customer retention, long-term customer renewal revenue. But it's a hard one to switch to because essentially you have to change the entire mindset of what your company has with the customer. So I, I like to give kind of this comparison where I say, hey, you know, if somebody, you know, was buying, you know, my, a Microsoft 95, right? You know, they, they would pay a couple hundred dollars for it or whatever. And they would have a certain level of expectation, you know, for that hundred dollars. And they knew that their product wasn't going to get updated. The next update would be like Microsoft 97 or 98 or whatever, right? So they just, they knew. But now it's like Microsoft is cloud-based, right? So customers with the inter with the kind of introduction of app-based systems and phones, customers now expect updates every week. If there's a problem, they expect it to be fixed. They don't expect to wait two or three years um, when you're on those SaaS type subscription models. 
And so as you move to a subscription model, you really have to think about what's the journey of the customer and how do I get the customer back to what they love, which is hopefully the product they purchased from you. And if they're subscribing to your services on a monthly or yearly basis, you can no longer rest on your laurels and say, hey, we're going to fix this in six months. Because the customers would be like, hey, I expect you to do it now, or I'm going to leave and cancel my subscription and go to go to a new customer or a new new brand. And so that that has changed quite a bit, and that's why it's a little bit harder. But it's also so much more valuable, Dan. Like if you understand that you can create profit in the customer experience and at the same time build your brand and build loyalty, and you go after that and you invest in that. You can have huge dividends, not only on your side, but on the customer side too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just keeping focused on what that end game is, right? Which is ultimately, right, right, is that additional value. And it's really, really compelling. Well, as we said earlier, you've successfully navigated an acquisition scenario. Congratulations on the close uh, with the Fisher Labs, becoming part of the Arise Virtual Solutions team. What kind of leadership challenges or learning tend to be most compelling, do you think, during an acquisition and subsequent integration process? And as you're doing that, and obviously we're in a time now where there's even greater virtualization of the workspace, right? We're not all mm-hmm. co-located. Does that play into it at all? I mean, is that a big thing? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So when we created Ephesium, you know, you know, 2019, so three years ago, pre-COVID, you know, I won't claim to be the owner of this vision because other people have thought about this before me, but I really felt like it was super important to be a decentralized company and not to be constrained by physical properties and not to be constrained by the way that companies that have physical offices are. And so I really believe that in order to build the future of service, the future of experiences, you had to be completely decentralized across the globe. And so as we already had that in our ethos, when we went into, you know, kind of the acquisition talks and then the close, having it be 100% virtual is natural for us. Um, I, you know, still haven't met any of the acquirers face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I think that for companies that have either different ethos or or are used to like a tr- traditional brick and mortar, you know, there can be a, a couple of learnings that I might share that they would consider in this more virtualized environment. One I think is super critical is daily communication. I can't emphasize that more. Like having daily communication, making sure nothing gets misinterpreted, not, nobody misunderstands questions, answers, progress, where you're headed. That communication, that collaboration was key to, the, to our success, and both Horizon and Ephesium did that really well. But in this virtual world, you have to do that. So that's one thing. The, the second thing that, that I would share is, as you think about the acquisition, the merger, and then to the integration, you know, having that integration plan well before kind of the close date is critical too. Understanding how you're going to integrate, where the initial value set is, where the long-term value set is, and then what is what does the go-to-market look like post-integration, as well as how are the internal teams and technologies and processes and frameworks going to integrate? That having that whole plan plan kind of ironed out, and then having owners on both sides um, of of the buyer and the seller w- was super critical. So that's the second piece of it. 
mentioned as a learning. And then the third piece that I would mention is, and, and this may not be what you expect, but it's culture. Um, I think it's really right. important that if you're going to choose to you know, be purchased or merged with another company, that you really understand their culture beforehand and you feel like there's a cultural or core values alignment. Uh, because if you have that, if there's any bumpy spots, which naturally there will be in any merger, um, then it's going to be easier for you, for you guys to, to work together and work through those and build a stronger relationship. So those are like the three things that I really learned a lot uh, in addition to like that kind of virtualization component that you mentioned. You know, Jonathan, I think actually that third one that you mentioned, culture, that might actually be even the most important when you think about yeah. the human factor. And, you know, we're in a period of time, we hear this phrase, great resignation. There's this greater concern over retaining quality employees. And from my perspective, and maybe yours too, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is when you go through that process, most of the time, the exits a lot of times have nothing to do with, oh, I didn't get the scope of responsibility that I wanted in the new organization. A lot of times it just comes down, I didn't feel like there was just really a fit at more of a personal level. And it's yeah. just like, it's not the best place for me. So you're right. Do not overlook how powerful that cultural aspect is going to be. Agreed. Yeah. Now, uh, you've actually said something really interesting. I would like to dive into this a little bit. You have said that it's important for early stage companies to quote, think bigger than you are. Can you share a little bit more about that? Maybe some examples? Yeah, I mean, when we started Officium, you know, it's interesting. So the vision that I had for Officium is going to be realized in a rise. And my vision was like a seven to 10 year vision when I started the company. So we, you know, most folks will know us as kind of you know experts in customer service, customer experience, profit center-based experience. But the larger vision for Fissian, when I sat down with my co-founder, and I actually, I have the piece of paper. I know we're audio, so you can't see it. But I have the original piece of paper that I wrote the vision on after I was sitting on my chair in the living room and looking at the wireless router and saying the future of service is network-based service economies that's completely decentralized. That, that collides with the future of work and the future of payments um, and payments being, you know, crypto as well as traditional fiat. And how do you create bi-directional value between decentralized, a decentralized network of CS, you know, workers, employees, service partners, and decentralized clients. And then how you, do, and then how do you kind of grow that to be a billion dollar business? That was the initial thought that I had as I was creating as those, I was thinking very big. And then one of the things that I've, I've kind of noticed with a lot of founders is they think big and then they stay big. And I think that's, that's something that I would recommend not doing. So what I said is like, okay, we have this amazing vision. What are the stepping stones in the first couple of years for us to be able to deliver that like in five, seven, 10 years, right? And so then we broke it down and we said, okay, these are the key things to create a profitable business that is sustainable, that will put us on the path to, to be able to achieve that larger vision. And so that, that's the efficient example, you know? So that's one example of how we thought about it from a business strategy standpoint. The second example of how we thought about it was, you know, if people don't know us, let's figure out how to leverage marketing to fight a couple 
weight levels above our kind of the belt, right? You know, if we're if we're kind of a minnow in the pond and we're a welterweight, how do we how do we how do we project that we ha- we're either a heavyweight or we have heavyweight status? And our thought process was we could really leverage marketing from day one to do that, um, whether through social proof marketing, through thought leadership, through conferences, through blogs, through podcasts, and really projecting that while we may be small in size, we're going people are gonna think that we're bigger because we have that capability inside us to be bigger. And so we need to let them let them know that they can tap into our talent in that way. So that's kind of the, a second way that we did it. And then I think a third way that we did it was not falling into the startup trap of hiring a bunch of 20 year olds. There's nothing wrong. 20 year olds are great. They, 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 there's some super talented 20 year old founders that are amazing. But we wanted to hire folks that have been in the industry for 15, 20, 25 years that had larger networks of uh, capability, larger networks of talent, could be a T-shaped employee, which basically means they can go deep in one area, you know, and then wide across. And they had large networks so that we could sell and grow the business faster. So those are those are three ways that we really thought, let's let's think bigger then small and let's let's really kind of double click into that and, and double down. Yeah, really interesting examples. And you brought up marketing. So we think about marketing over the last 20 years, it really has evolved from art to much more of a science. And curious how that more scientific aspect and what marketing can bring, have you seen that play an even greater role in that value generation? If you're a fast-growing company, you're on a track to be acquired, so your goal is this maximum value creation. Do, do you see now that marketing is in that much stronger position to play a critical role in that? Oh, definitely. Perception is reality, right? And so what people perceive your value to be beyond you know, what the numbers say, it, there's, there's definitely a, a play in that. And so I think that people – I had an old boss. He used to say – Jonathan, you're always on stage and you never know when the curtains open. So you should always pretend that the curtains open. And I think that I love that analogy because as a company, you're always on stage. And what are you communicating to the market with every bit of public content that you have, regardless of whether it's paid marketing, organic marketing, whatever it is, you know, what are you saying about yourself? What are you saying about your company? What are you saying about the future? And that ultimately indicates what are you saying about your value, whether it's value of somebody that may be interested in acquiring you or merging with you, value of a client that has a problem and, and is interested in helping having you solve that problem. You know, whether it's an employee that is working at a Fortune 10 company and wants to take a bet on a small startup like Officium because they believe in the value. Marketing plays a critical role. In fact, I would say I don't know how companies can really be super successful in this day and age if they don't understand the power of marketing. And and do you see a lot of, I guess, fundamental education even still happening? You would think it wouldn't be necessary, but do you see a lot of that just basic fundamental of education around just what is marketing? What is the objective? How does that complement, you know, other functions like sales? I mean, do you think there's still a lot of that basic fundamental learning that's still going on? 
I would say so. I mean, especially in the startup area, because what you tend to have is, let's say you have 10 startups. It's rare for a services startup to be like the, the founder to be a services guy like myself. So I won't even include services in, in this statistic. I would say a marketing founder is probably one out of 10 and nine out of 10 are product founders. And product founders yeah. Yeah. in some cases have marketing experience, but generally don't. And so they have to either hire it, hire it, hire it by, you know, kind of, or they have to learn it. And the only way you can learn it is through massive education. And I, and I know that you didn't intend this when you asked the question, but as a services founder, I didn't know marketing as well. And, and so I hope it's okay for me to mention, Dan, that, that I, you know, caught up with Steve Gutzler and, and you know, you knew Steve and he knew, no. he knew that you were an expert in marketing. And so you actually helped the FISIM in our early days. I understand a little bit of our marketing journey and education. So, but I think it's also true for larger companies because of the compartmentalization that, you know, that I mentioned earlier is once you start specializing, even marketing gets specialized down to the point where, you know, people aren't paying attention to the full marketing picture and they lose value and they lose education and capability because of turnover or a variety of other things. So I definitely think there's a continual education that has to happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's just constantly evolving. And of course, the other aspect, when you're in an acquisition scenario, there's evaluation, there's exchange of information. Yep. And we're in a world where there's never been greater sensitivity around data and security than right now. What, how do you see that playing out or how does that impact going forward this whole acquisition conversation and process? Well, I mean, I think... <clears throat> It's table stakes for any acquisition merger to, you know, be GDPR compliant, you know, to be you know, PII compliant, all those, the different rules and the different organizations. I find most companies that are smart find the most stringent security standard globally and they just follow that. And then that kind of keeps them compliant globally. I think that as you do the integration with any merger, you have to really th think about the technology part of the integration, security, fraud, compliance. And those are important components. Those aren't the sexy things that people talk about a lot, but any, any merger that you have, that customer information, employee information, all that stuff has to be safe, secure. You have to have this element where you don't lose trust or safety with your people or your customers. And, and so it's, it's, it's an essential piece that people don't talk about. So I'm glad that you raised it. Um, but I consider it to be table stakes. Like if you, if you're going through a potential merger acquisition process and you haven't had that conversation, um, then you need to have the conversation ASAP. Yeah. That would be the ultimate red flag moment, right? If you don't see yeah. that in the integration plan. So that's a really, really good point. And you have had such an extensive and such broad experience as a leader It worked in all sizes, shapes of organizations, just pulling it all together. And you think about all of the people that you've really relied on for advice. What do you think has been the single most valuable piece of advice that you've received that's had the greatest impact in you as a leader and throughout your career? So I think, so there was a, a leader and he told me, it was, it was when we were doing the startup. There's just so many examples that I could give you, but you're asking me for one. So 
there's a leader, he said, get ready to hustle. And before I started my own startup, I thought I knew what hustle was, but I had no idea what hustle really was. And the, you know, have been, having been an executive at very large companies, I thought I knew what hard work was. I thought I knew what hustle was. I thought I knew what grit was, resilience was. I didn't know what any of that was until I started my own company. And then I was responsible for everybody inside of my company, for every part of my company, you know, legally, finance, operations, customer, client, everything, right? And then I really learned what the term hustle meant. And, and it wasn't hustle like go, go get a bunch of clients. It was like hustle. You've got a lot of work to do to make sure you can build an amazing company. And so whether you're building a company, whether you're starting a new job, whether you're early in your career, whether you're changing jobs, I think that's an important piece is always be hustling because you're always on stage and you never know when the garden's open. Yeah. And I think about getting ready to hustle and really a lot of people translate that into, oh, well, that must mean working hard and working hard means lots of hours. But actually, I would think it's more about working smarter, right? It's not necessarily the volume of hours. It's being more efficient with what you do and, and what you choose to prioritize. Would you say that, that that's been your experience too? Yeah. I mean, when you think about the word hustle, you're right. People think, tend to think about the physical aspect of it, but there's, there's mental hustle, there's emotional hustle, right? There's social hustle and there's physical hustle. And all four of those are critical. Um, and if you use all four of those in a very balanced way, then you're working smart, in my opinion. And we've been talking a lot about value and value creation. Do you have any final advice for business leaders that are seeking to maximize value with a capital V in their organizations? I think I would, I would ensure that the work that you're doing is delivering the outcomes that you desire to exist in five years. And what I mean by that is if you are doing work today that is only tied to today's value, then you're going to fail tomorrow. So you really have to think about what's the value story in five years and how am I working to create that value today? That's the advice that I would give. Absolutely. And it, it's really hard sometimes, right? Because there can be these pressures to really pull you into shorter term thinking. And what you're talking about is the long game. That's right. You have to think, and I think this is, again, one of the challenges with large enterprises, and it, I'm not saying that it's easy, so don't don't take that. But one of the challenges with large enterprises is, is they think in 12 to 18 month you know, timeframes, whereas smaller companies tend to think in lo longer timeframes. Or you may have somebody at the larger company that's thinking in the larger timeframe, uh, but it only a few people in the whole company isn't part of the conversation, right? Um, and so I think that it's really important to, to be thinking, like, even if I was, let's say I was like the VP or SVP of service again at a Fortune 10 or company or whatever, you know, I would still be thinking about five years out. I might not be able to execute exactly or share what I'm thinking, but like as a leader, I should be thinking that way and then figure out, well, how do I get there with the constraints or the execution challenges and opportunities as well as benefits that I have of being in a large 
enterprise, you can still think that way. You may not be able to execute in the same way or the stories that you tell or the language that you speak internally up and down and around you. You may have to figure that out, but you, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be thinking that way. Back to that mental framework again. It, it yeah. definitely makes a lot of sense. Well, Jonathan, really appreciate you jumping on, sharing your experience in successfully navigating value creation as part of the acquisition process and also just that customer focus, customer experience, passion. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the time, man. It was a great honor. And a reminder to everyone to keep continuing to provide your feedback. It is so valuable for us. Rate and review. You can do that on all of the major podcast platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify. Keep that feedback coming. And a reminder, as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.